0: Hello, and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 494. My name is Minter Dial, and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on the network, please do go and visit evergreenpodcast.com. So, this week's interview is with my friend Anita Novak. Anita is an empathy activist, an expert, principal, and founder of PVM Studio, a global advisory firm that supports purpose-driven individuals, family offices, foundations, and companies. Anita is also the author of Purposeful Empathy, Tapping Our Hidden Superpower for Personal, Organizational, and Social Change, which is due out in April 2023. In this conversation with Anita, we discuss her journey to becoming an empathy enthusiast, the power of the empathic embrace, new research on and the future of empathogens such as MDMA, misconceptions about empathy, as well as some of the useful tools in her book around self-development, virtues, and questions for reflection. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. And please, if you have a single moment, do go and drop in a rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Anita Novak, how lovely to have you on my show at bloody last, I should say. Um, You uh, were kind enough to have me on your show. You and I have been empathy, empathy activists, working with all sorts of wonderful people. I feel like we know so many people in common. Although we've never met, and and I've never really met so many of them uh, so you lived in Tbilisi you're now back in Montreal in your own words Anita who is Anita doctor Anita Ruddick Novak
1: well, Minter, so lovely to see you again. It's been a while and you're right. We do have a great circle of empathy enthusiasts and, you know, we both do podcasts about meaningful conversations and empathy and you don't typically meet a bunch of assholes that work in that space. So <laughs> we're both meeting. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Who am I? Um, I think I would uh, describe myself as a lifelong learner slash educator. Um I've studied for a long, long time. My, neither of my parents went to; um, uh, they didn't pursue higher education. They were both born in Europe during the war, came over to Canada as immigrants, met, and um, I didn't grow up with a conversation of consequence at the dinner table. To be honest, and that I don't hold that against my parents, but they they didn't pursue formal education so uh, beyond their their high school, and um, I did, which made them proud. And then I did a, a a graduate diploma and a master's degree and a PhD. And my dad was like, are you done yet? And I'm like, no. So I went and did a coaching degree and I'm thinking of going back to school now. So I love learning. Um, I love unlearning too. Um, and I that's something I share with my undergraduates because I teach three different courses at McGill. I teach leadership. I teach ethics and management. And I teach social entrepreneurship and innovation. And uh, I share with my students that so much of their job while they're doing their undergrads is to really unlearn some of the social stories and the the stories that have been projected onto them by, you know, their parental units or society and just really kind of question things, really. That's the time, right? They're in their late teens, early 20s um, to really question things. So I'm a learner and an unlearner uh, and a teacher. That's who I am.
0: Beautiful. Well, and, and, and eternal learning. I think that's sort of what we all ought to be and uh, your so your course on ethics and management I was talking to the chairman of several companies on the board and I was like so just a question I was wondering to what extent ethics is a conversation uh in the boardroom or what do you mean well I don't mean much more than that I just wondered to what extent explicitly you talk about being ethical Well, we talk about charities and ESG and Mm -hmm. how do you find the conversation about ethics in management happening?
1: Well, the way I've designed the class is the front end of the class is we look at ethics from three different perspectives, from a psychological perspective, where we, you know, explore whistleblowing, for example. So what is the psychology of someone who's willing to stand by and watch an unethical thing kind of uh, take place, or someone who can't tolerate that, right? And we have good examples of whistleblowers all over the place, and yeah. they do important work. Then we look at ethics from a, a, a philosophical lens, right? So, um, you know, what what the, the principles upon which ethics uh, and ethical decisions are made, and then we look at it from values. And I think that's the the big one for students is that we're not used to talking explicitly about our values. And we think we know what our values are, but actually when we do a little investigation, there's a great assignment where we have a hundred words like that are values. And I ask them to sort of choose the 10 values that they most align with not from like I wish I were this way but like I really am this way these are my core values and then we go down to 5 and then the real work is go down to 2 choose your two top values and sometimes you know you're choosing between honesty and integrity or compassion and respect so it's mm-hmm. tough mm-hmm. um and I think that's where the the real meat on the bones are when you're talking about ethics and making ethical decisions they have to be made based on what you value. And so that's the beginning of the course. The second part of the course is we do some cases. I have lots of guest speakers coming in to talk about different experiences they've had, whether they work in philanthropy. I have one um, senior leader in communications that was actually the senior vice president of SNC Lavalin, a major engineering firm, has you know, 50,000 employees around the world. And they were kind of having contracts with Gaddafi. Um, and they got caught, uh, you know, doing some very unethical things and, and she, how she managed that. So we have a lot of cases and then the students do some research of their own and teach the class. So I've got some students looking at the prison industrial complex, some students looking at, um, fast fashion and the ethical issues around that. So it's a great Mm. course, a lot of fun.
0: Well, certainly. And, um, the, the work you do on values, I want to get into that a little later, hopefully with your framework, but what it strikes me and and maybe it's a core concept that also will have a an effect on empathy is that somehow well I believe that ethics are deeply personal Mm -hmm. and and so are your values and we kind of get this idea that there are corporate values but corporate values can only be lived and breathed by individuals who are making them come alive and and so, it feels like if ethics, the, 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 this particular chairman said, well, ethics really we don't want to talk about it. We only talk about it when we get caught,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and then oh well, then we'll sort of ask for a pardon afterwards.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And and it does feel like that's sort of a, a Wall Streety or a, you know the streets approach is you know give me va- give me growth, give me shareholder return. I don't really care how.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So it feels like we need to talk to those people about ethics. We we go in there all gung ho, naive to some degree, and anyway hopeful. But there's a whole system that needs to be undone before we can really bring ethics into business.
1: I agree. Um, I think the cultural norms of organizations have to permeate the organization. They have to be embodied by all the different stakeholders within the organization and they certainly need to be um valued by the leadership and there need to be uh you know benefits attached to people living up to those core values and uh you know it doesn't you know the leaders at the top don't have to have the all the brain power to figure out how that's going to manifest across the organization so for example i was hired by a med school To help them bring more empathy into their culture and they wanted me to work on the um curriculum that their students so their soon-to-be doctors are going to go through to become more empathic doctors right we need empathic doctors and empathic obviously and i was meeting with them and i really appreciated the, the 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 holistic attitude or perspective that they had about graduating doctors that care about wellness. So they at- attach their entire curriculum and their entire med school to the UN SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals, that it's about like the wellness for the world, right? And they are actors for wellness. I really love that. And I said to them, why so downstream? Why are you bringing an empathy only in the curriculum for the students? Why not have it come through across the entire organization? So they said, okay, well, what do you have in mind? So we put together a curriculum for their let's say 25 leaders and administrators with the school. And we did a couple of sessions together, including a how do we create a culture of empathy in the organization? So a typical kind of design thinking brainstorming. And there were six um, mini groups that broke out into like, you know, little little work groups and three out of the six. So half of the people in the room had the same recommendation about how the organization could be uh, could live a more uh, empathic uh, culture, and one of the, the the suggestions they made is they don't have a place in their building where they can come and hang out together, just sort of like a staff lounge, right? They they go to meetings, they see each other, they maybe walk down the hall and they meet each other, but they don't actually can relax together, and the leadership really listened to that. So between that session and the next session, which is basically like a weekend in between, they emptied a huge storeroom with the photocopier and the boxes. They painted it, bought some couches, bought some yoga mats, put a you know large screen TV and did a big reveal. And look, I got goosebumps when I'm talking oh. about I've mentioned this story so often. People were crying. These leaders were walking into this room and felt heard. So I think so many of the cultural values that organizations have can be embodied by all the frontline workers. Everybody across the organization can contribute to what it means to be that kind of organization and doesn't need a big, top-heavy strategic plan to do it.
0: It strikes me, Anita, in listening to you. It needs you to be a little bit crazy all the same because everything is so transactional at work. You know, this is the meeting room to do this. This is what we're doing at this meeting. And and how much are you getting for that? And there's it's ROI-focused, KPI-focused. A meeting room where we just meet and shoot the shit? Huh. You know, we don't need that. we got to be busy. And, and so the crazy part is, well, listening to people, have this crazy idea, and then actually implementing it. I feel like anybody who's listening to this, who doesn't have a crazy room or a crazy person who can lead to the room, uh, that's the first thing you need to be, every company should be doing, every business should be doing, allowing for meeting at a personal, informal, casual level.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, because that's the way we build uh, social capital. And that's where we feel a sense of belonging. So that. What you know, I've got a lot of people. If I you know do a little workshop or a seminar on empathy and empathic cultures, they'll say, "Well, we're a high performance culture," so that's going to kind of get in the way. And my uh, response is, "No, actually, the metrics bear out totally differently. Where if you have space where people can collide naturally and just ask about the weekend and ask about, hey, how was the wedding you went to, or how's the your your son's graduation? How did that go?" People can naturally build up friendships and then trust goes up. And then when you have miscommunications, you don't assume the worst of each other. You assume the best because you know each other, they're just having a bad day. All sorts of positive things start to happen that allows for greater creativity and innovation, less turnover. So there's just, it's, it's so old fashioned to think that Um, creating spaces where people can be human before their role and responsibility as employees, So it's so old-fashioned to think that that gets in the way of the work. That actually greases the wheel for the work to go more smoothly.
0: I love the word used, collide. Um, And your book has so many great examples and lots of useful things to do in a company, but I wanted to pick out one sentence that let's say raised my eyebrow, but mostly because I smiled heavily. And said to our brains an empathic embrace i think of collide is as rewarding as great sex and psychedelic drugs you're talking to business people how does that work
1: well it's true the neuroscientists have studied that i don't okay so here's what i've learned is that when you have your brain in one of those FR, fmri machines they can sense what's lit up in your brain And what they've discovered is being in an empathic embrace, so feeling a sense of kinship and belonging and connection with someone, um, the pleasure and reward centers of your brain light up. The same pleasure and reward centers that light up when you eat good food, when you are in a high state of meditative kind of uh, like energy um when you're high on psychedelics and when you're experiencing postcoital bliss and I, that one i always wonder like how do the researchers know that one but- exactly
0: yeah <laughs> i mean I, well, how do you they they just qualify it was good it was good sex <laughs> it's um,
1: good it was good
0: but i mean like- you also mention and 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 for me uh this leads into another thought but you also talk about how metzner the, the harvard researcher talks How the presence of MDA triggers the release of prolactin, which is the same hormone when you breastfeed
2: Mm -hmm. or
0: for mother infant bonding. So as far as MDMA is concerned, I mean, it it feels like the empathic embrace is a proxy for the MDMA, which is doing the same thing as making you feel like you're feeding your child with your breast, you know, with breast milk. Which, well, so reassuring and fulfilling at some level I, I mean
1: mother nature is so amazing right so if mother nature produces these hormones to connect the infant to the mother that's for this that's to instill a sense of the mother wants to take care of the child she feels good in taking care of the baby and the baby is latching on to the mother and that's for both of them to thrive so that the baby will grow up feeling safe and secure and will you know at least grow to a time when the child can be more independent. Now imagine if that, those same hormones could be released uh, in another circumstance where closeness and attachment and bonding is core to it. You know, you probably, if you read the chapter where I talk about the neuroscience of empathy, and I talk about the kind of interesting new research that's coming out about psychedelics, you'll know that ecstasy was first called empathy- before somebody in LA said, actually, I think we're going to sell it. more drugs if we sell, yeah, if we call it ecstasy. But the the drug itself is the most, um, it, you know, widespread experience that people talk about is this closeness and connection and empathy they feel towards people when they're high on that drug. So I find it fascinating that there's this resurgence of research around psychedelics for therapeutic purposes to help people with PTSD fighting addictions fighting all sorts of trauma it's but i death. also want exactly and i think imagine if we weren't attached to all our pharmacological um solutions imagine and i don't mean to abuse of it and let it just be about raves and parties imagine with guided therapy you could feel a state of wholeness and connection with people that would be healing beyond years and years and years of talk therapy i think there's great opportunity and great potential there
2: greetings from evergreen podcasts we're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show.
0: Well, I I did have a a friend of mine who launched a ketamine, uh, so so a psychedelic short lasting um, assisted therapy center in New York. And I, I plan to have more because i i I fundamentally personally have and fundamentally believe in the power of psychedelics to raise consciousness to to rewire the brain to make you feel as insignificant as you truly are to get rid of the ego Mm -hmm. and and all of these things actually if you translate them into business fuck yeah well, we should also have having sex and take drugs at work. <laughs> it makes me think, but I mean, certainly my MDMA, usually done in in a fun, spirited way, uh, it the, to get to know that feeling, and to get to feel that that sense of kinship and bonding. You know, in a platonic manner, even is so powerful, and the, the challenge, of course, is keeping it in, in business. So the issue is, how does one? transition non-empathic CEOs and unempathic culture into being more, I would say, cultivated, but at least more empathic? Mm,
1: That's a really big question. I think part of it will come when people realize how much they benefit. So one of the things that um, I discovered is, okay, we know Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Think of your intro to psych class. Hmm. and once your basic psych 101 exactly
0: by by the way hey i i'm going to tell this, this is the first time public recording my psych 101 exam at colgate university i took two tabs of lsd <laughs> two hours before the exam started i didn't know the exam was coming so i actually wrote my psych 101 high on lsd close parentheses
1: <laughs> how'd you do yeah
0: <laughs> I got a 98 out of 100. That's I was amazing. I was enlightened.
1: It's <laughs> amazing. That's a great story entre parenthèses. Um I don't even remember what we were talking about. What were we talking about?
0: We were talking about making businesses get with oh, the yeah, program right, 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 through right. benefits if they understand yeah. the benefits they will get there.
1: Yeah, and what was I going to say about this? Um I had something that I was going to say, so hold on. I'm sorry
0: for the interruption. That's the crazy crazy way I work. I mean, (laughs) basically, we know that empathy can help creativity. It can help engagement. It can help client-centricity, customer service. If you, but the challenge is making them sort of understand it and then making it happen because empathy in the end of the day for me takes time.
1: Right. Okay so that thank you for that segue back to maslow's hierarchy of needs so that little triangle that you remember from your intro to psych class was actually never his uh somebody who was doing the textbook decided to put it into a triangle it's a little footnote of history that i learned anyways we all know the triangle so your baseline needs are met right food and shelter and then a sense of belonging and friendship and then intimacy and then all the way up to self-actualization So the idea that Maslow had was, you know, we're trying to, as we fulfill our other needs, we're trying to self-actualize. That's the highest state that humans can achieve is a sense of fulfilling their potential. And we believe that, right? That's a very compelling uh, story. And it's existed for many years. And it's part of the positive psychology movement that I think he can take credit for being sort of like the grandfather of. What we are learning more recently is that towards the end of his life, In unpublished work that's surfacing, he actually realized how wrong his model was, that self-actualization is not the pinnacle of what we can achieve in our human endeavors. Actually, it's self-transcendence. And self-transcendence happens once we've self-actualized. How can we put our gifts to service? To service, to service, right? To serve others and be of help. Let our lives be purposeful to help other people. And I think the the great thing about being of service is that it actually really feeds our souls. So right now, I think we're in the perfect society for our souls to decay. It's All of it is about buy this so you fill the hole. Look like this so you can fill the hole. You know, there's this whole social media amplifies it and makes it worse and just everything about our consumer culture is like you are not enough you are unworthy and you know you have to be more of your be more be more do more do more work harder buy more and the reality is if we give more if we appreciate more if we're more grateful for all the gifts that we have and we recognize that we are all born with the capacity for, to generate incredible things. We are all generative by nature. That's who we are as human beings. If we could tap into all of that, then empathy would come so easy and we would all benefit. There's just so much benefit. I mean, just in my one little anecdote that I like to share when I was learning about the neuroscience of empathy and that we could become more empathic with practice, right? Thanks to neuroplasticity. And now the work of Jamil Zaki is like even Believing that it's possible to become more empathic actually changes the outcome of how much empathy we show. When I started learning about all that like ten years ago, I remember this one instance. I was doing all sorts of experiments, but this one day I was in a lineup at a FedEx office, and it was busy holiday season December. And it was before it mobile phones were in our hands as like the appendage to our hand um scrolling through just to keep us busy and occupied, right? So I was in a lineup for about half an hour got to the counter and the woman who greeted me was rude. And I mean, like really unnecessarily rude. And I immediately was like, what is wrong with you? You know, and I, you you know, you're, you're, yeah, exactly. And I'm like, okay, I don't want to speak to you. Give me your manager. Like you are so super unacceptable to me. But in that moment I said, okay, I'm going to practice something that I'm learning. I'm going to see whether I can extend empathy when I'm feeling least empathic for this gal. And I paused and I looked at her and I said, are you okay? And there was this little pregnant pause when she was trying to discern whether I was being sarcastic or not. And she realized I was being earnest and she burst into tears. And she said, I have been working double shifts for two weeks. My son's at home with a fever and I'm getting sick. It's 3 PM. I haven't had a lunch break. I am flat out exhausted. And that little question, which revealed what her circumstances were, allowed me to see her as a human being, where I've been there. I could relate to her. I all of a sudden had tons of empathy for her. I remember getting her a mint tea from the food court. We had a, an amazing connection that has stayed with me all these years later, where empathy opened up for our common humanity to show up in a totally like natural, organic way. She then said a few things, got a few things off her chest. She Proceeded to send my package off with grace and efficiency. And I had practiced empathy. I had made the decision consciously and purposefully to practice empathy. And as a result of that experience, I tried over and over in all sorts of different circumstances when it was not natural for me to do it, because I was triggered to actually say, okay, let me see if I can dial up the empathy. And I have done it over and over. I'm not certainly not a perfect person. I still am very unempathic many times but i am a happier person i think as a result of practicing empathy and i think if more people understood how much of a gift it is to be an empathic person we would be more empathic as a culture
0: amen to that and and you know this other point of you're not empathic it's impossible to be empathic all the time with everybody all the you know everywhere and and so we need to get off that perfect pitch And I know that there's time because the issue I see in business is that it actually takes effort. It takes presence of mind. It takes being present so that rather than being triggered as you could have been by this uh, nasty FedEx uh, greeting, you just tapped in. Mm -hmm. Are you okay? And but then you have to listen. Because if the person says, yeah, my son is dying and I'm this and that and I'm hard, you know, and you're like, yeah, but I want my package gone. Transaction. Business, you might get the package to go, but you didn't create anything and, and didn't help anything. And and that, that was a lasting wound in that relationship. So if you think in business, how transactional people are. How are you doing? Good, good, good. Oh, good, 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 you know. Don't mm-hmm. don't even tell me anything bad.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I feel like while there was some of that going on in the pandemic, because people realized that people weren't all good and people were at home and, and such. And the cat comes on and the child is crying. But as we've come out of it, I, I feel like it's very quickly gonna come back to, especially since the pressures on economics and 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 business are going to be here that we will just quickly revamp back if we can't lean into it. So uh, with time being short, I, the, the, I the, your title of your book is Purposeful Empathy. And I w- wanted to see if you could tie in for me purpose and time to be empathic, as opposed to just purposeful empathy. In other words, what's the link between purpose and, and being able to be empathic?
1: Mm-hmm. It's the, it's, I think it's fantastic that humans have the capacity to empathize. We evolved as a species to and survived and thrived as a species because of our capacity to empathize. That's just not my opinion. That's people who've studied evolutionary science have come to that conclusion. And I, you know, when you were talking about the, the corporate situation where it's all transactional and we might kind of revert back to the old ways of being you know when the pressure's on and recession is coming and all that stuff i believe that leaders two really core competencies that they need to develop is the capacity to listen and the capacity for self-awareness because it's not enough that somebody comes into your office and you know you're half present for them. You've just read an email where you haven't met your KPIs, and you're feeling triggered yourself. And then an employee comes in, and they want to take you know time off because they had a miscarriage or whatever's going on in their lives, right? You need to first of all, if you're personally triggered, like I was in that circumstance, right at the at the FedEx, like she upset me, and I made the decision to switch gears, where I was self aware to say, oh. I could react in a way that feels much more natural in the moment to do. It's what I feel would be juicy to say, what's wrong with you? Like, don't treat me like this. But I actually took the nanosecond to say, no, no, I'm actually going to practice being empathic on purpose. And that is something that you can develop. Like you go to the gym and you work out your biceps with curls, you can become more empathic with practice. And that is choosing to be empathic on purpose. It's great that we can become that we have capacity to empathize, but what do we do with it? We choose to be empathic on purpose. So by just asking the question, how are you, elicited for her a space where I actually cared and then I stayed with it to listen with an open heart and then the empathy just kind of, you know, blossomed all by itself. And I think that that's a really important um, skill and competency for leaders to develop is the capacity to, okay, I'm, how am I feeling right now? Okay, I'm choosing to switch gears because the need of the person in front of me is right there and I need to be present to listen. We spend most of our time, we think we're listeners and that's a joke. We spend Hmm. most of our time listening to respond instead of listening to understand. It's certainly amplified whenever we're feeling any emotional charge and we're living swimming in emotional charge on toxic social media where everybody's in these echo chambers and we hate each other. The minute we hear like a word that is associated to a particular political orientation, we're all of a sudden dismissive and we have got to keep our own emotions in check to be able to hear what someone else is saying without immediately having this like, you know, response. Um, Yeah, that's what I would say about that.
0: Mm. Well, I feel like there's this sort of a number of things that have got together that have created this situation. As you were talking about a little bit before, I, I can't help but think that the fact that we only have one or two children generally has contributed to this. It used to be like you were part of a football team mm-hmm. and you were, or the the family was a community. Mm-hmm. Now it's like, and you didn't even know if how many you had and the names of everybody kind of thing, mm-hmm. where now it's just one or two, maybe three occasionally, but on balance and everyone's a prince and the perfect and you better protect them. And, we have time for everything. They're the most important people. So we've created a situation as parents where they expect everything Mm -hmm. to be about them Mm -hmm. and, and it stays with them throughout. And so this lack of community, and then you have this whole session of fear and the social media missing out, or, or I got to show a perfect Instagram and, and this idea of listening without an agenda or, and certainly without a judgment, it's like that silly room you have. You know, I don't have time for that. It's not not giving me direct results. And yet there seems to be so many studies that show it will bring results. Um, And I feel like there's this, on the other hand, there's HR issues of too much information. That's private. You can't talk to me about my night out last night. Or my relationships with somebody, because gender differences, homes you know sexuality differences. so there's a data issue, there's a privacy issue. And so sometimes in work, we constrain ourselves so much that we can't really I can't hug you because, oh, that might be me too. Mm-hmm. if me, man, with you, woman,
2: mm-hmm. in a business
0: environment. And so we've kind of ass- as I know what the word is, a sanitized. that's my French, A sanitize, sanitize. We've made it so clean and so legal that this notion of messy humanity
1: at mm. work mm.
0: doesn't have a place.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So let's go back to the earlier point that you made about families. Um, we certainly have, I think, um, Secluded ourselves as family units without the intergenerational and the sort of, you know, it takes a village to raise children. We're all living in single dwelling homes and each kid has their own bedroom. And I think that that's contributed to a sense of sort of like more alienation and more personal boundaries as opposed to community. So I think that that is true. Um, there's research out of Harvard that, um, you know, parents, when you ask them, what do you want for your kid? You want your kid to be healthy and happy, right? um but and a
0: lot lot will say wealthy too Uh,
1: and maybe yeah maybe too unfortunately Uh, unfortunately um so successful i guess but uh most parents put so much pressure on the academics as opposed to developing the socio uh not the socio the uh, sel the social emotional learning of the child right um, and one of the things that I learned, which I found fascinating, so for my own PhD, I interviewed social entrepreneurs. These are career change makers that use the entrepreneurial skills of any entrepreneur, but then applies it to a social or environmental problem, right? And I wanted to understand why did they choose to spend their life working on a complex social issue like homelessness or poverty or racism, Right. And it's a Sisyphus, right? You're probably never going to solve the problem, but you're working on it and and you're trying to find levers, right, to to create some positive social impact in the world. And there were two things across the board that I heard over and over when I interviewed these social entrepreneurs. And I, I was agnostic to what issue they were working on, but I was asking them questions about their lives. One thing that they all had in common was that they had service behavior modeled at home in their families. So the idea of families doing volunteer work together was part of their childhood. They all had memories of that. And I don't think it's, you know, we're busy taking our children to hockey practice and to Mm -hmm. violin lessons or whatever, and they're like over- um stimulated and over you know their agendas are full they're driving around all over the place to make sure that their cv is good to get into the filler school that becomes the filler school that ultimately like takes you up the cheminement to to harvard or stanford and 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 i don't believe that there's enough exposure to service again which is you know already at the highest scale of the maslow's hierarchy of needs just to realize how much self
0: transcendence you
1: benefit by being of service, so that's one thing when it comes to raising children that I would say that I found super fascinating um, to learn about. The other that I learned about was um, that they all felt compelled to act on empathy for others. So, so that was the second thing. But the where you took it after we talked about the children was um, was in the office or where? Remind me what you were what you led with.
0: Well, essentially the 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 notion of empathy being a, you have to have the time for it you have to have the the mindset the presence to do it mm. and i'm so busy doing other things with my goals the pressure it inevitably falls off the wagon because i don't have time for it
1: yeah yeah that, i mean that's why for a lot of people the pandemic was one of those moments of reflection about our life and to slow down and to spend more time with our family and I, I inevitably, um, especially if the recession gets worse, and I think there's going to be a course correction in the markets. Um, and we're 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 seeing already the tragic um, outcomes of climate change that's only going to worsen over time. Um, You know, oil prices are going to go up, there's going to be so many economic demands, and then political instability, you know, all over the place, the rise of totalitarian kind of, you know, tough men uh, taking over power. Um, In
0: democracies.
1: In democracies, right, in democracies, that um, we're, we're in for some hard times ahead. And I think we're going to find solace in community. And in our relationships. And that has always been with us as human beings, but we forget about that. But that's the place where we're going to find some support systems is in our natural communities in our natural caring communities. And it's a shame that we forget about that when we're in a in a better financial circumstance that all of a sudden having more and wanting more is the ethos of 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 fulfillment which it isn't why are we seeing such a rise in mental health and addiction and self-harm and suicide why is that all on the rise Um, because we're not feeling connected and feeling a sense of purpose and meaning in our lives
0: i would add that we some people will have attached themselves to certain causes like global warming but they're so big so sisyphean to use your term that i'm never going to be able to do anything so Mm -hmm. i think that the idea of community and and going more local and being sort of less ambitious somehow Mm -hmm. to be Mm -hmm. more realistic is going to help you accomplish something for others being in the service of others and community is a part of that you know whether it's you know your family extended or local community uh plus you know in counterpoint or in paradox of the globalization idea where Mm -hmm. we're all one planet i think that the luster is off that we're all one human race there's no doubt that for me there's always been no doubt that that's not true we have to belong to a community which means that we do not belong to every community. Mm. Otherwise, you belong to everybody. You belong to nobody. Mm. Nita, um, I wanted to talk to you about the self-development tool you discovered. You you have so many things in your book. Can't do it. Ah, um, great book. Really loved it. I want uh, any anyone who's listening to this to go and and find purposeful empathy, tapping our hidden superpower for personal, organizational, and social change, by Broadleaf Books. What other links can people have, find out about what you're up to? Because you you are really one of those wonderful empathy enthusiasts, activists that people need to listen to.
1: Well, just the YouTube channel, every week I put out a podcast and a YouTube video with other empathy enthusiasts. Um, I've interviewed a woman uh, by the name of Amanda Lutterman that you know, who has the Center for Erotic Empathy. I've interviewed people who um, are looking at how to develop empathy in young kids, uh, neuroscientists that are studying not only mirror neurons, but the fact that there are social neurons that even in a space we are, um, you know, resonating off each other's kind of vibrational fields. So I'm just interested in amplifying the voices of people who understand that the world needs more empathy and are doing something about it. So that would be the place that I would, I would send anyone who's listening and is curious How to leverage empathy at a higher
0: frequency. So, I thank you for your work, Anita. I certainly thank you for also including me in your book. I really appreciate that. And again, anyone get the book, go go find your usual bookstores and download, buy Purposeful Empathy. Read it, digest it, and do it. Anita, merci beaucoup.
1: Avec plaisir, Minter.
0: Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show, would like to support me please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash MinterDial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on MinterDial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote. Stephanie Singer, a convinced man.
2: I like the feel of a stranger tucked around me, precipitating the danger to feel. Anticipating the thrill of your intellect Maybe I tell myself there's no use in me lying I'm a convinced man building an urge I'm a convinced man to live and die, submerged. A convinced man in the arms of a woman a convinced man, challenge my fate. I'm a convinced man, competitions in me. A convinced man in the arms of a woman, despise revenges and struggle with deceit, live for the challenge so life's not in. What's wrong with challenge? I know soon we all die I like the feel of a stranger tucked around me Precipitating the danger to feel free Trust in my reason and let me show you why I'm a convinced man practicing my lines I'm a convinced man hearing these confines A convinced man in the arms of a woman I'm a convinced man put me to the test I'm a convinced man I'm ready i